Hello and welcome. My name is Amber Thieneman and I work in the education department at the Speed Art Museum in Louisville, Kentucky. And right now I have the immense pleasure of speaking with artist, researcher, writer, teacher, and citizen scientist Dario Robletto. Dario, thank you so much for taking the time to share a bit about your practice and to answer a few questions related to one specific work of art. You're very welcome. I have a ton of questions for you in general, but for the purposes of this interview, I will only ask a few (laughs) and only as they relate to the artwork entitled The Common Denominator of Existence is Lost from 2008. I wonder if you might describe this work to the listeners. Oh, okay. So it's uh, a sculpture, and there are a number of human hand bones uh, laid out in a circle aligned with these prehistoric cave bear paws, uh, several tens of thousands of years old. They are uh, arranged in a circle on a pedestal um, that is made of glass and this particular type of wood, they are holding in their hand, in each of those hands, holding a, what looks like a hair braid, but is in fact a stretched audio tape. And the audio tape is a process I've come up with of a way of handling, manipulating sound uh, in a physical sense. But it's a very rare recording of early attempt when a sound and recording had just been invented and it's a scientist who is making, like I said, one of the first recordings ever made, and he is slowly speaking like a clock. He's saying one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, and on. And an incredibly haunting uh, recording uh, from the late 19th century. Just for clarification, I know people often ask, but it's not the original recording. It's been transferred to audio tape. Uh, that, that recording preserved elsewhere. Let's see, last little detail I'll point out is the glass that the objects are sitting on is purposefully designed so that when it's lit, it casts a shadow on the ground, uh, which is definitely, I consider, part of the piece. I think we're going to talk about that more in a minute. Perhaps one of the most common or obvious questions about this work is where did you source the human hand bones and do you have any additional information about the people to whom they once belonged? It's a tricky territory to uh, use human remains and I, and I always take it very serious. When I use them, I uh, need strong conceptual reasons to do so. And also the point you're asking about sourcing it. And so where, where does one begin to look for such a thing? And the place that I was able to find them in the amounts that I needed were most of the anatomical um, skeletons in medical schools uh, in the mid-20th century and earlier were, were actual skeletons, people who had donated their bodies to science uh, for, for, for use for educational purpose. And over the years, those have turned into plastic skeletons and I'm sure some schools still have them, but generally they use plastic ones now. So many of those anatomical uh, skeletons are, are now sold or traded to collectors of various types of medical history museums and private collectors like myself. So they were sourced from that way. And it was important to me to do it that way because there was 
at least an agreement that, you know, in the time of death, that their bodies would be used for educational purposes and for, you know, for the advancement of knowledge of the body in that sense, uh, medical sense. And I felt it was a very uh, natural connection to then want to use them in an art setting for a similar type of educa- educational point, a uh, different point I'm trying to make, but I like that there was some continuity in the purpose of um, those original uh, objects as far as educating others. So that's how they, that's where they come from. And I don't know individual people beyond the story I just told you. And I, and I love that you asked me that and I know why you're asking because I, I often do everything I can to find out such things. Hmm. In this case, I can't know their names, but I can know at least some intention of wanting to give their body to science. And so in that sense, that was sort of filling in that gap that I often need uh, to use such materials at a, at a personal level. And I love that that is, that is a very important part of your process as well. So as a follow-up question to that, or maybe an extension to that, um, how and or where did you source mm-hmm. the extinct cave bear paws? It's, it's a similar uh, story in the sense that of, of collectors. And so much of my practice, is about being a collector. Um, you know, if I wasn't an artist, I would still be a collector. And I collect all kinds of things. Fossils is high on my list of, of something I've always been interested in and collected over the years. These, though, in particular, like maybe it's becoming obvious that everything I pick is particular for a reason. And, and these are, well, just to answer you directly, they're sourced in similar ways from various types of fossil collectors. Um you know, I have lots, lots of different dinosaur bones from different time periods, but I source these in particular, and it's important that they're extinct and that they are part of what many scientists consider the first great wave of human-induced extinction um, in, from about 15 to 15, 15 to 50,000 years ago in the Pleistocene era. Um, we think that humans, for various reasons, competition uh, for land and food and other things, um, wiped out the woolly mammoth, uh, saber-toothed tigers, cave bears, a number of large animals like that. And so it was important to search, and it took a long, took many years to gather the number I needed, but I needed that particular species of cave bear for this purpose, that they are likely in that first wave of animals and other life forms that, that our species pushed to extinction. And uh, I know you know that that is a topic of great interest to me as far as when in history did we cross this this threshold of, of pushing in something else to extinction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they were sourced for that purpose. They're all can be defined in that way, uh, unfortunately. That also kind of leads into this next question. I know that you often in your practice will begin with a question or 
or multiple questions. Um, can you talk a bit about what the guiding questions leading you through this this work were? Yeah, there is a big one. And, the, and I should say this piece is one of uh, several pieces from a body of work that all orbit around several questions, but I'll just pick the central one, uh, which is how does one mourn for something never mourned for? And that question was framed in context to um, a, a year-long research, partly uh, on-site research trip, interviewing scientists, a number of other things, uh, in the Waterton Glacier National Park on the border of Montana and Canada. It's, most of us don't realize that there are glaciers in the continental U.S. and um, on our borders, and they are, like all glaciers, are rapidly decaying and melting. Um, so I wanted to do a series of works about not just environmental loss, but I wanted to find these other things, that, these peripheral points around that topic, one of them being what I just talked about as far as human-induced extinction, this conceptual line in the sand we crossed where we could argue back then we didn't, we didn't have the moral framework to, to judge our actions through yet. And part of what I re realized when pondering that point is that nobody even could have verified at the time that they had pushed another creature to extinction, mm. let alone had we developed the cultural um, checks and balances or the cultural response either through acts of mourning and loss, like the ways we have now developed is very complicated ways of memorialization. But along with those cultural advancements, you know, it is a is a way to not just deal with our loss, but to ask ourselves, do we want to continue to behave this way? And so it occurred to me that nobody was around to ask those questions for that first moment of mass human-induced extinction. But we can do it now. And I want to retroactively properly mourn for those creatures and mm -hmm. make art, uh, make acts of memorialization to remember what happened and to frame ourselves in context to that problem, both back then, but most importantly, moving forward. Um, so that central question, how do we mourn for something never mourned for was the driving uh, question behind all these, all these works. It's very beautiful and heartbreaking all at the same time. Yes. Um, <laughs> your, your titles are always so beautifully poetic, and I know that you've also been described as a materialist poet. Can you talk a little bit about how you come up with titles or at mm -hmm. what point in the process of creating do you produce the title of an artwork? Yes, um, I love that question because it is a, an important point. I, I do work on those titles uh, like a poet would. They, they need to hit the similar standards that, that a poet would ask. And I work on those constantly, I, whether I'm working on a sculpture or not. I have a running list of, of titles, poetic phrases that I'm constantly working on. And so they're, they're, they're crucial. They're, they're so crucial that in 
fact, they come first. And for, so, for example, the piece everyone I hope is looking at right now, um, you know, when you do have a chance to look at that title, know that that title came first and that the object you're looking at is an outgrowth of that title. It's not the other direction, which is, the, I guess, the expected direction as you make the object and then you title it afterwards. Um, I, I work the opposite way. I get to the object through language. And so it's kind of a backwards way of approaching a sculptural problem, but it's just the way I do it, and it's crucial um, to me. Uh, just a note about the title, but the common denominator of existence is loss is, and I know we'll get more to the piece in, in a second, but by putting the human remains next to the cave bear remains, two creatures who are intertwined in history now, one pushing the other to extinction, it's as if we're off the hook in some sense of our own extinction, which I think, of course, we're all contending with in a new way now. But whatever the dominant creature at the time can have a false sense of stability and longevity, whereas history tells us over and over, there are generally uh, windows of time each species gets to have on this planet, and, and then they move on, and something else takes its place. And so that, even though we caused the loss of that creature, that cave bear, I don't want us to think in any way we're off the hook either uh, from that process that tends to play out. We're, we're perhaps unique in that we have more control over our fate than any other creature that's existed on the planet, but that is really not a given, and we're going to mm-hmm. have to work for it. <laughs> um, work very hard for it, it, it seems. So the title is, is a nod to this fact that every creature that has ever been and will ever be will not only know loss as some fundamental feature of their time on the planet, but they themselves will become that loss. Will you talk a bit about the case, the pedestal, how this piece is displayed, and the significance of the materials that are used? Yes. So the design of it, you know, like I said, it, it, it's meant to function as a, as a case in a, in a kind of a, a nod to various types of natural history museum displays. But the wood is a now... Like like the other creatures, the wood is, it's, as a creature itself on the planet, uh, Bacote is also now considered a threatened species. And it's very important that I use all materials of extinction or potential extinction in the piece. And so the display case needed to also fall into that category, which is why I use this wood. Like with the hands and the cave bears, though, you know, the piece raised this interesting problem about how do you source extinct things. And especially in this case, the Bacote is not totally extinct yet, but it's pretty threatened. So I, like with the cave bear in the hands, I had to use, it was important that I use things that had already been used. So this is all reclaimed wood, uh, Bacote, and not cut from current growth. And that's also very 
important aspect in much of my work is to sample, I call it sampling in a sense, um, in a musical sense, but I apply the logic to all my materials. And that this constant recycling or reuse to sort of unlock this un- untapped potential that was still lying within the uh, material um, through my use as an artist is important to me. And this wood falls into that category. And the, the, just the last note about that glass, too, though, to make the bottom of a glass so the shadows would cast. And I really wanted it to ultimately sort of look like a sundial, like a, a, an ancient way of marking time. And so when it's hit with that light and cast that shadow, I, I wanted someone to see. Not only does, do I sort of get two things out of one as far as the, making the shadow sculptural, um, but it's definitely meant to allude to a type of clock uh, that's, that's keep, keeping track of time. While, as I said, they, they are literally holding time in their hand of a, of a human counting down time slowly as in this early sound recording. Wow. This is, there are just so many layers um, to this piece and to so much of your work. It's wonderful to hear you talk about your process and and to think about all of these different layers because it goes so far beyond just if you are looking at the work and you don't have this other information. It's just so important. With the with the lighting, because you also mentioned that at the beginning and then thinking about time I mean, was was all of that, did all of that kind of come to you at the same time or as you were thinking about the pieces needed to put this together? Mm-hmm. It's a complicated question because <laughs> I, I always have so many research topics coming at once. And right. so, you know, the, the research on earliest sound recordings, which, you know, I've done many projects with, not all related to this question of extinctions and uh, extinction and um, human-induced extinction. But this is why that title is so important, because often the title lets me see across all of my interests and find where they want to overlap. So I had independently been working on searching for the oldest sound recordings as, you know, for, for other reasons I won't get into, but it occurred to me that that recording was perfect for this topic um, because sound recording itself, one of the reasons I'm so interested in it is because it is philosophically, it, we take it for granted today, because we, we use it so often, but at its birth, it, we often forget or maybe never realize that many of those people who created it thought they had in, in fact invented a type of immortality machine. Mm-hmm. Um, there was great discussion about the fact that this would now allow us to cheat death because we could hold our voices forward in time long past the decay of our bodies. You know, we do it every day. We don't think about it anymore. But the origin of that technology is rooted in a serious grappling with our mortality. When you When you know that, and then when you factor in that one of the three oldest recordings that have 
actually survived. This is the irony of it, is that they thought they made a machine that would survive time, and most of those early recordings have now disintegrated. Mm. Uh, but a few that have made it, what uh, what are the odds and just the eeriness that of those early recordings, one of them would be a human counting down time, and that that would be handed down to us um, all the over a century later as a sign of you know human uh, some human trying to hold on and grapple with time, uh, thinking they had solved it, and yet decay set in. And the recording, I, I should point out, if anyone's listening, it's by a man named Frank Lambert, a scientist named Frank Lambert. And there are recordings on YouTube you can find of it now. It's been preserved in other formats, if you'd like to hear it. Uh, but it is very eerie recording just because it's it's literally decaying. So it's hard to make out what he's saying, but he is he is counting down time like a clock. Um, I think I now forgot your original question. <laughs> no, that was so great. I'm, I'm getting like goosebumps listening to you talk about this. Um, so you about the, the, the connection across. So yes, yeah, so so the you know maybe it all makes sense now, but we have you know a, one creature tens of thousands of years ago. We have humans currently, um, and and then, well, humans from about a, a 125 years ago who were also grappling with their own mortality and time. And so all these materials are at some level about holding on for time. And that's why they these hands are, in, in a very literal way, they're, they're trying to hold on for a little more time. And that's what I put in their hands, is the invention of, time as sound, um, the first human reciting it back in in time. <laughs> wow. One last question okay. that um, <laughs> I wanted to ask is there are so there are twelve human hand bones and then there are six extinct cave bear paws included. Is there a significance to the number that was chosen for this? Um, the significance is more for the whole shape in that mm-hmm. each each counting the two hand human hands is one. But essentially, it's like a clock. It's back to the clock idea. There are twelve units when you go around. Um, if you count the humans as as one thing, then the cave bear, then they're, then we're kind of moving around uh, like a clock is what I was really after. Okay. Yeah. And it ended up visually looking more interesting if I used both human hands mm-hmm. for their sort of slot on that imaginary clock. And that was more of an aesthetic decision. But the main decision was that it had 12 entry points, like a clock. Well, thank you so much um, again for taking time to speak with me today. Um, You're welcome. This was such a pleasure, and I know that it's going to be appreciated by many listeners. I will end by saying um, that Dario Robledo's work, The Common Denominator of Existence is Lost, is part of the special exhibition Supernatural America and is on view at the Speed Art Museum through January 2nd of 2022. Thank you so much for listening. Dario, thank you so much for 
speaking with me today. You're very welcome, Amber, and I hope <laughs> everyone enjoys the show.